from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Our guest today is Julian Maddox, who is a member of the first violin section here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. He is also a substitute with the Pro Musica Chamber Orchestra in Columbus, was a finalist for a position with the New World Symphony in Florida, and is an active chamber musician. Originally from Minneapolis, Julian first came to Northeast Ohio to pursue his undergraduate studies at the Cleveland Institute of Music, where he is currently pursuing his master's degree and is an active member of the school's Black Students' Union. Julian Maddox, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Hi, Matthew. Hey, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. So a huge part of what we're trying to do here on this podcast is explore the lack of representation by the Black community in classical music. And the lack of representation leading to a lack of participation, both in the audience as well as on stage. You are a Black person in the world of classical music, so tell us, in spite of the lack of representation, what are some of the ways that you were exposed to classical music as a young person? Sure, yeah, I think that uh, my exposure to classical music first came from my parents and the radio. Uh, neither of my parents were musicians at all. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was sort of a bolt from the blue, uh, but I guess it's just always been in my blood. I remember even as a toddler, uh, if they were listening to music in the car or at home or whatnot, if they ever switched the dial away from 99.5 FM, which is <laughs> classical Minnesota public radio, I would like shout and protest, no, turn that off. That other music is terrible. Uh, put the soft music back on. And uh, it's sort of funny. My mom's a big Prince fan, obviously being Minneapolis-based, Minnesota, mm. uh, homegrown, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I wouldn't have any of it. And my dad was a big James <laughs> Brown guy. No, none of it. Oh, um, wow. you know, th thankfully, I've since broadened my horizons, uh, especially <laughs> since with, with classical music, even what I, what I perform and what I study often is not really soft at all. Um, but, but yeah, I, as I said, I think that for whatever reason, I've just always had a passion for this music and uh, I found my way to it. Yeah. So you have this passion as a young person. So what uh, pushed you to pursue an actual career in it? Right. So uh, I remember my parents sort of noticing that I was into classical music. They said, all right, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take them to a concert or something. And I, uh, maybe when I was five or six years old, I remember we were downtown in Minneapolis at a Minnesota orchestra concert. And they played the uh, Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet suite, mm -hmm. which is like one of my all-time favorite pieces, even to this day. Uh, Josh Bell played Tchaikovsky Concerto, and I was I was just struck by the sound of the strings, like the color and the richness and the depth 
in the in the Prokofiev particularly. And then when I saw a solo violinist walk on stage and after he played, I, I like tugged on my mom's sleeve and I was like, you can play the violin for a job. <laughs> I, I was I was dumbfounded. I was I was amazed. And I, uh, you know, I said right then and there, that's what I wanted to do. And um, some I'm not going to say how many years later, uh, that's where I'm at. <laughs> right. Awesome. Fantastic. So I have to admit, I met you uh, about three and a half years ago before my first concert with Canton. We met at a party with a mutual friend. Right, right. And uh, so I've known you for a little while now. And I have to say, I didn't know until we invited you to be on the podcast that you were from a mixed race heritage. Mm. And while it makes no difference to me learning this about you, what are your thoughts on the concept of passing as white when you are a mixed race person? And do you feel like you have benefited in your life and maybe career from being able to pass? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, I always preface my discussions when I'm invited to a panel or something with the fact that I, uh, I am, you know, biracial, but I don't necessarily look as though I'm black. It's, it's a perception kind of a thing. <laughs> Um, it doesn't change anything actually, because I'm just as black as someone who looks, you know, darker skin, different features and whatnot, but I, I don't. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, there, there's, there's no doubt that there is an element of visual privilege. That's what I, what I call it. Uh, I often deal more with otherism and you know racial ambiguity people are not sure what i am and they don't they you know i do deal with that a little bit more often than you would think but i definitely get treated you know better than someone that just outright looks as though they're black and i think that's really unfortunate but i think that because i have that element of you know visual privilege um it's that much more important for me to to work on behalf of my community, work on behalf of the black community, because if I have more access just because of the color, the actual shade of my skin as a black person, then, you know, for all of the millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world that don't have that access and don't have that privilege, which by the way, shouldn't exist in the first place mm -hmm. because we should all be treated with kindness and respect. Um, you know, I, I, I owe it to people who are just like me to do as much as possible to make things better for all of us. Yeah, wow. Um, thinking about that and the, you know, the fact that you are a minority in this community and you decided to pursue a career in this and it seems that it was kind of always at the front of your mind that this was a part of your identity and that maybe this is something you would face and have to be a champion for maybe if that's, if that's the correct term, but uh, did you think about that a lot when you first decided to enter into this career or was that something that came later once you were actually in the field? Right, right. Yeah, to be completely honest, um, I didn't really think about that very much when I was a young person. Um, I think, I think you know, kids, kids just want to play and they just love what they love. Um, and I started when I was a kid, you know, I think it's sort of disappointing that as years go by, that that kind of spirit and essence and passion and you know warmth starts to dissipate a little bit and we start to see lines um that are invisible they, they don't exist but for whatever reason they start to shape up and divide people and divide us a bit and um 
Yeah, I growing up in Minneapolis too was a big part of it. I, I had a very diverse community, uh, friends and family at church and school and whatnot. And um, there was another violinist who 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 was like me. He was he was biracial, uh, and the two of us worked with the same teacher, and we always had each other to you know sort of egg each other on, try to compete in a fun and fun and uh, I don't know fun way. That's the best way to put it. We, you know, we said, oh, you learned that one this week. Oh, I learned this one. And, you know, that, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that we would always do. And, but then, you know, once we started going out into local competitions and stuff, we, we started to actually realize, hey, you know, most everyone else here is either white or Asian American. And we're the only two, you know, people that aren't. And I, uh, so, yeah, I, I didn't really realize it that much until later. And then mm. it's sort of one of those things where once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. And uh, I think that's something I carried with me now uh, throughout the rest of my time uh, as a musician. Mm. Wow. You talk a little bit about this experience uh, of your childhood and in the world of music. Can you tell me if there was a specific moment when you realized that in the country at large that black people are treated not the same as white people and around how old were you and was there a specific instance a specific event that made you see that um yeah you know it's it's a little bit heavy to talk about but i remember uh, I guess I was I was in junior high uh, when when Trayvon Martin was was shot, and it was really sort of devastating to me. I uh, I can feel things getting a little bit weighted down on me even now. Uh, I, I I was just shocked that you know I, I I again as a younger person I didn't really see a difference. Obviously I you know I looked lighter than Trayvon and Tamir for that matter and others but um you know they were they were young people like me and um again I have a unique perspective in that I present differently I look differently and I guess that's I realized two things at that moment which is that you know I do have different experiences because of the way I look and two is that you know, anyone in my community could at any moment be treated differently with fatal results. Um, it was, it was, it was really sort of a dark realization for me, but I try to uh, now reframe things uh, fr from that darkness, take an opportunity, look at the, look at the upside, which is we now have the power and the obligation uh, to try and make things better. And it's been, a, it's been a long time coming and it's not something that changes overnight. And um, I think recent events have really helped others come to those similar conclusions that I had a long time ago. Wow. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how large portions of this country just uh, maybe it's only in the past year they've even realized that there is a, a difference in, in the way people are treated and um, 
for you know for someone who is who is white and not a person of color um i can't i can't imagine and i can't put myself in that position and you know all i can do is try to learn and listen and hopefully you know a lot of this country will will do that and kind of take a step back and let other voices be in the forefront um because they've you know not been they've been silenced for a while um and you know looking at the lens of classical music uh once you you know went to conservatory or started playing um you know we've talked a lot about passing but also the fact that you're very much you know you very much are a a black person did you ever feel that you were discriminated against in the field of classical music because of who you are um yeah so i've it's interesting i i mentioned this word otherism before mm, yeah. uh you know people might look at me and be like huh uh you know sit down in the orchestra rehearsal or something and i've i've, I've literally had people just sort of look at me quizzically so what are you and i'm like mm. i'm a person but uh it but as to what you're asking about i'm i'm mixed i'm half black half white and then they'll be like oh 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 so you're not really black and <laughs> you know another unsolicited comment or something mm. um you know sort of microaggression type of things i uh i also remember once a kid was saying like oh well you know you could get into that school or you can go to that orchestra because you're black right like they they knew me oh. and they knew that about they say oh so you know my success is not because of who i am and the work i put in my success is because it's a handout or they want a tokenization of right. some sort or something like that and then i mean I'm, i won't lie i've i've heard uh i've heard racial slurs like people that know eat or don't know um they'll use racial slurs such as the n-word around me at me or uh I I, uh, I actually had a online sort of verbal attack on me and my family uh, mm -hmm. by some anonymous person, and you know I don't feel too comfortable disclosing the specifics of that. Right. But the the reality is, you know, unfortunately, yes, these types of things, whether it's a micro or macro aggression, they happen uh, a little bit more frequently than you think. But I'm 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 also glad to say that in in our community, in the music community. There are um, far more, you know, thoughtful and compassionate people who uh, who don't, you know, intentionally or unintentionally make insensitive comments. And uh, as you said, racial people who would rather, you know, listen and try to lend each other strength uh, when there are those who would try to tear you down. And I think that that's, you know, a beautiful thing about the music field because that's that is really what we're about. We're about sort of bringing people together and lifting each other up uh, through our art form. And maybe that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it today. Right. Absolutely. Right. Did you have any role models of color when you were growing up in the classical music profession who you looked up, who you looked up to and you could say, that person has done this to a great degree of success and I can do this too. I can be just like them. Sure. Yeah. So um, my, my teacher growing up was Sally O'Reilly. She's a fantastic professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, she, she, she's white, but she had many former students uh, who went on to have successful careers. Uh, and she made a point actually of introducing them 
to me when I was younger. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't really think of it at the time. I said, oh, cool, you know, violinists. I, I, all I saw was, you know, <laughs> these are role models who happen to be violinists. Um, people such as Tammy Lee Hughes in Louisiana or uh, David France in Boston, uh, the founder of the Roxbury Youth Orchestra. But, you know, I, it was funny. Then some 10 years later, after I was a kid that met these violinists, uh, I went to the Sphinx Connect conference in mm. 2017, which mm -hmm. is a huge, huge event that sort of accompanies their their competition for Black and Latinx uh, musicians now. Right. And uh, I ran into both of them there, and it sort of it just went full circle for me. I realized, you know, these aren't just role models that are violinists; they're role models who are Black violinists mm -hmm. and you know that's something that we all tapped into together it's something that we share and um you know that's something that we carry with us each and every day uh regardless of if someone realizes it or not and uh you know i i, I think that having people like them uh on my radar and also just having support you know from friends and family that were that were also in this community it really just made me feel as though I could go for it. You know, I, I didn't feel as though anyone was holding me back other than me. Uh, mm -hmm. I still try to feel that way, but unfortunately, you know, sometimes there are adverse forces, uh, but you know, I can't control that. I can control me. That's, that's mm -hmm. how I take care of it. And um, yeah, you know, I think that their presence in my life definitely, definitely um, was impactful. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you you studied um, and are currently studying, going to be finishing up you know, your master's soon um, at the Cleveland Institute of Music, uh, where I, I believe you are a founder of the Black Students Union. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and its purpose and, and why why you ended up founding it? Sure. Um, so the, uh, the official line, the CIM Black Student Union, uh, was founded in 2019 by myself and three other Black students. Um, our mission was to sort of improve the lives of Black students on campus, as well as improve communication and relations between uh, all students and all groups. Uh, our meetings are open to everybody, everybody. It doesn't matter if you're Black, White, anything. Um, and we were committed to making sure that there's, you know, equitable representation uh, within our community. So um, as to why we did it, you know, we realized as time went on that we as students had some power to, uh, to affect the student body. We said, you know, we can actually bring people together literally in a room uh, and that's that's how it started. We just, you know, got four, then five, six, then seven, eight students would come together every once in a while in the school's conference room. And, uh, and then actually, as time went on, we started to get more organized. We developed a lot better. We went through some growing pains, uh, obviously made some mistakes along the way. That's, that's, that's natural. But, you know, we then started organizing concerts, uh, fundraising. Uh, we were able to present guest speakers and things of that nature. Um, and then over the summer, we actually had, you know, hundreds of people signing on to our virtual programming, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, anything from our CIM alumni to our faculty and staff, even our president of the school was, was hopping in on those calls mm -hmm. and participating and listening and sharing and 
um, I guess that it just sort of became the space for people that are either directly involved in this work or their lived experience as black people. Um, you know, it, we provided a space for everyone to come together safely and um, respectfully and really created something for everybody, I think mm -hmm. is, it's ironic. It's called the Black Students Union, but it's for everyone. And um, right. I think that's, I think it's a good thing. Quick, like a little bit of a follow-up to that is how, how quickly did students who weren't of color decide to also come and learn or or is it is there a great involvement from the white students on campus as well of, of trying to educate themselves or is it primarily um, the people of color on campus no yeah definitely um our, as i said our first few meetings was probably the seven to twelve black students at cim just hanging out like i said <laughs> right. but, but we started to sort of on social media be you know hey you know everyone come to our meeting come have snacks come have our <laughs> snacks our are great for college kids yeah, always, always. <laughs> and um and, and you know people started to see hey you know we're it's not as though we're being lectured to we're just having a conversation mm. about something that's really important and um you know, I, I am learning and the students were able to do that, that weren't black as, as early as a month after we were founded. Uh, we started in the spring. So spring semester, February, March, and then by the time we did our end of the year gathering, um, you know, everyone was there and it was a really good thing. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, as I said, it sort of became clear as time went on that it wasn't an exclusive thing and we, I, we had to say in every advertisement and every not just for black people it's not just <laughs> for everyone right. um and and i think once that really once people really heard that and it sank in they believed it they said okay okay right right so what are some of the examples of the programs that the black student union has brought to cim and what are some of the ways that CIM has expressed an openness to work with the with your group to make the classical music world and training in a, to be a classical music professional yeah. more accessible to people of color? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, CIM was already you know thinking about this type of thing when I had first gotten there and I was one of only two musicians of color in my whole class actually wow. um, they, they, they recognized this and um, they said you know we want to be involved in these efforts I remember in 2017 or 18 uh, that was the first year I went to Sphinx uh, mm -hmm. there was there was a equity and diversity you know task force and they actually invited me as a student representative to participate oh, cool. in it and um you know every from there on every year there were more people involved and more um you know more programs that were dedicated to this um by the time 2019 rolled around uh cim was paying for any student that wanted to go to the six conference to go and we had a huge group um i actually was only there in and out for one of their audition programs but i um but cim you know brought 50 
60 community members up there on a bus. I mean, it was it was great to see them being very committed. And then their other, you know, big thing was being willing to sort of collaboratively work with our group, the VSU. Um, we're currently developing something called the Alumni Mentorship Program. Uh, it's sort of an idea that we had at one of our summer programs. Uh, and we said, you know, we want to build a program that connects, you know, conservatory students of color with the people that are out there successfully, you know, living lives and careers in music. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be something that we roll out this spring where um, a number of students get to, you know, regularly meet and discuss and um, maybe even receive career opportunities. Uh, applications and whatnot from people that are already out there in orchestras and arts administration and education mm -hmm. all around the globe. Right. Um, let's see, there was the, uh, there's a team that was built over the summer called the uh, Champions for Systemic Change. Mm -hmm. And that includes the Black Student Union leadership, the uh, president of CIM student government, some staff, some faculty members, and our, uh, our deans, they're all involved in this project. And basically, we engage with every department and every facet of the school to try and promote, you know, bringing diverse and equitable representation to our art form, whether that's in the classroom, or on the stage, or in the dorms, or where, you know, wherever it may be. Um, yeah, I mean, they've been uh, collaborative is the word I always like to come back mm -hmm. to about this is because, you know, if you're working an issue just from one side, then you, you can only do so much. But if you have uh, partners and other groups that you're working with, then we have that much more power to, you know, collaboratively work at these goals and make them become reality. Absolutely. You've alluded a couple of times now to the Sphinx organization to, yeah. and the work that they do. And for our listeners who have never heard of this before, please uh, tell us a little bit about the Sphinx organization and the work they do. Sure. So Sphinx is, uh, they are based in Detroit, Michigan. They uh, have, they originated as a competition for young musicians of color, uh, Black and Latinx string musicians could compete in the competition for cash prizes as well as opportunities to uh, sort of jumpstart their career mm -hmm. and that I think they must have started in like the 80s or the 90s because they've been around for over 25 years now right yeah mm -hmm. and they uh, they've grown to a point where they have so many different programs and resources for musicians that are not just performance-based now yeah. Um, the conference that I've referred to, Sphinx Connect, it's essentially a three to five day, uh, you know, session where they have hundreds, and I mean hundreds of different uh, lectures and recitals and workshops and whatnot. And you can go and you can learn from, you know, presidents of conservatories, principal musicians in major orchestras, um, edu music educators, I mean, everyone, everyone is there. <laughs> and it's, and they're, they have a lot of funding as well for musicians to try and either create something of their own or take an audition 
or travel to the audition. You know, right. they, they can assist musicians of color in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that our partnership with them, both at CIM and uh, the Black Student Union, um, we just have a huge network in place thanks to the work of Aaron and Afa Dworkin. Give mm -hmm. them a quick shout out. Oh, yeah. Great. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's the best the best few days of the year for <laughs> black musicians for sure. You've talked about um, what you've been doing at CIM and what CIM has been doing to try and you know uh, be more inclusive and equitable towards its students. And you know, I myself am a graduate of a conservatory as well. Uh, what do you think that institutions of higher education, maybe you know specifically conservatories, do? to support and encourage students of color to pursue music you know sam talked about the costs of having to audition yeah. and flying and just training so you know looking just kind of at the world at large what do you what do you think are some things that these higher institutions of learning could be doing sure so um at the end of the day it's all about music for us right it's what we love it's what we're devoted to and um there's no denying that there are some barriers to entry and those are financial burdens on families and of students. And, you know, I think nothing short of providing everything that's instruments, equipment, mm -hmm. maintenance fees, uh, teachers and other programs free of charge. I, uh, I think that that's a really, really important thing to offer mm -hmm. to students that don't otherwise have that access. And, you know, every institution, you know, they, they get a little nervous when they hear that free of charge thing, because yeah. let's face it, providing these things, excuse me, it, um, it takes, it takes a lot of resource, right? It's a great deal of resource. And I think that if we maybe reframe and shift our focus a little bit, we realize okay, well, maybe we're not taking in money because of the, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're paying for a number of violins and cellos and villas and basses, but suddenly we have more students that are passionate about music mm. and we have their families who are now involved and we have their friends and their family's friends that are involved. And I mean, you can't measure everything and you certainly can't measure what we do. I mean, music goes beyond that, which is touchable, which is reachable, which is quantifiable. I mean, the love and the power that you can achieve in this art form, you can't measure that. And we feel it after a great performance. We feel it when we're interacting with our audiences and they're passionate. We certainly feel it when there are a bunch of, you know, five, six, seven year old kids in the audience at a kid's concert and you just hear like the best sound ever, which is just like that, yay! Like, <laughs> you can't measure that. And I think that by telling ourselves, you know, well, we can't afford it, we can't do it. We're the only ones telling ourselves that. No one else is telling us we can't do it. And I think that once we realize, you know, bringing other communities into our doors, bringing other communities and putting them on our stages. I mean, that's, it's an endless resource right there of passion for the arts and of, um, you know, of lives and careers in music, which again, you can't possibly measure that. 
And I know that with the resources that the music community has at large, there's nothing stopping us but ourselves. Right. And this is something that I've thought about and struggled with a lot, especially with the Canton Youth Symphonies, which um, here in Canton, it's a very diverse community that we live in. Uh, but our youth symphonies are almost exclusively white students. Sure. And how do we make sure that we're including all of the students? And a lot of that comes to the funding towards schools to have orchestra programs, which is not something that we can fix overnight. But, you know, that's something that I've thought about a lot when looking at our students that we deal with every week and, and seeing seeing the, our very few students of color who are there and just um, trying to lift them up as much as we can and support them because I know that uh, they're passionate about what they do and I, I want to see more of that in our youth symphonies and so that's something that I'm thinking about a lot. I know it's not higher education but it's definitely something that you know it's always about money and funding and um, I think you know here in Canton we can totally do it. We just need to figure it out. <laughs> I think there's another part of the puzzle too though which is you know for, for young musicians, and I mean really, really young, like when I got started five, six, seven years old, yeah. um, seeing is believing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we, we've, we have this canon of works or we have this way of doing things that we think is, you know, this is the way that it's been done. So this is the way that we do it now. Yeah. And I think that we're at an exciting time where we can change that, you know, we, for young people to see musicians and to see conductors that look like them come, for guest, you know, presentations and performances. That's seeing is believing, you know, and suddenly a black conductor is on the podium, a, a young black student says, hey, you know what? I can do that one day, mm -hmm. I will do that one day. Uh, same, same goes for the music that we play and that we listen to, right? Uh, why, not, why not put works by composers of color on our programs and then suddenly a young student of color said, hey, Nan, I could write that music or I could be playing music that someone like me wrote. Mm -hmm. And again, that it taps into that which can't be measured, which is that you have a community and a culture that has essentially been omitted for hundreds of years because mm -hmm. of the way that we just do things. Uh, you know, suddenly that goes away and we, we open our stage, we open our halls and we bring in that much more um, to the table. Mm -hmm. So along those lines, uh, as a conductor, myself as someone who's responsible for programming music, it's it wouldn't be that hard, honestly, for me to just say, you know what, I'm going to program a piece by William Grant Still. I'm going to I'm going to program a symphony by William Grant Still or Florence Price. I, I as a conductor making the programming decisions can do that. As far as getting music by pieces by composers of color onto the orchestral programs. The harder thing, I think, and especially working within the union environment that we do with our behind the screen auditions, how can we get more people of color on the stage right. in the orchestra without yeah. compromising the idea that we want our auditions to be based solely on how the person performs, what how they can play and how their sound would fit in the orchestra. What can we do to get more representation on the stage? Right, so I've, uh, I've actually thought about this issue quite a lot because the audition circuit is something that I'm a part of, at least I will be as soon as auditions <laughs> happen again, uh, thanks to the uh, COVID pandemic. But um, 
I, I've, I've spoken with musicians of color that are in prominent positions and, you know, some very interesting things come up, which is that, you know, they may have gotten themselves through the screened round all the way to the finals, right? And then the screen comes down and then suddenly things start to go a different way. And, mm. or, or perhaps they actually, they win the audition, but then there's an interview round, or maybe there's a, a tenure process that gets a little bit, you know, long and drawn out because somebody in the section isn't so sure if that's somebody that they want to be working with. Um, and, and as I, I've, I've mentioned before, sometimes those, those microaggressions, you know, that fear or anxiety of the other uh, comes into play. And I, I get a little bit nervous thinking about those things because that you suddenly are like, well, you know, I have to talk the right way and I have to do things, you know, this way. And, 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 and before you know it, you're all bottled up and you're not doing things the way that you did in the first place, which is probably what got you that far beforehand. I mean, you, 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 you were yourself when you were a blind auditionee and then suddenly, oh, hang on, I have to do things differently. And I think that that sort of cover up or that um, unoriginal process uh, presents some obstacles. But then I think there's also this idea of bringing more people from diverse backgrounds into the field in the first place. You know, I think that the way that we get, you know, 10, 20, 30 musicians of color on stage at a, you know, professional orchestra is we get 200, 300, 400 young musicians uh, of color through our very earliest stages of musical education. Right. And um, we talked a bit about those barriers to entry. If we can diminish those or completely remove those obstacles, then, as I said, uh, our stages will look like the world at large, mm -hmm. diverse, full of everyone and every culture represented in everyone involved. Um, I think that, you know, between focusing on the early end and then also making some small adjustments on the latter end uh, where, you know, a musician of color wins the job, but then they don't get the job, that's, that's gotta stop. You know, we've right. gotta, if you win the audition, you win the audition. I know, um, I know that the Met, for instance, uh, I know they've had some issues lately on the fiscal side of things, but they, uh, their auditions are screened the entire way through. Um, even the final round is, is screened. And as a result, they're one of the most diverse and well-represented groups in the country. And I think that's no secret right there because the fact of the matter is there are qualified musicians and qualified people from everywhere. They come from all across the globe and all across the country. And um, again, it's, it's, it's just a matter of making sure that there's focus and support at every step for those people, um, people like me. Right. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised because I've never witnessed this myself. I'm quite surprised to hear that even in the music world, which we think of as a more open-minded sector of society than maybe the country or the world at large, that there are still some musicians in orchestras 
who might consider not giving somebody tenure because of their race. And yeah. what can we do within the within our organizations, within orchestras to help combat this and to help bring these skeptical yeah. orchestra members who are living in a, it seemed to, to me at least, seem to be looking backwards rather than forwards. What can we do to bring them along into yeah. where we want to be on this? Yeah, and also the administration and board members. Right. Board right. members especially, board. but yes. I think, you know, there, there, there are a number of complexities, right? First and foremost, it is a free country. You are, you are free to think, you know, that someone Black or someone mixed is not good at what they do just because of that. You, I mean, people can think that. And I think that, you know, it's, it's not as though we're going to suddenly say people have to think one way or say things one way. That's, that's divisiveness, you know, if you come at someone and you try to attack them and tear them down because they were attacking you and tearing you down, what have you done but amplified the conflict, made that line in the sand even stronger and, and wider, you know, further divided. That's, that's not the right thing. As you said, Matthew, bringing people along, showing them uh, that, you know, hey, we, it's not as though we're coming to attack you or anything like that we we just want to have our place we want to be participating we want our art form to have a space for us and we definitely need to deliberately carve out that space because right now it's all but dominated by white american and eurocentric culture and people so by you know deliberately carving out that space in a way where we you know reframe the narrative a little bit which is that Again, we're collaboratively working on this. We're trying to make things better for everyone. Right. And um, not to mention that we make our, our institutions better when we have more perspectives of, of, you know, people have a different perspective on how to uh, achieve a certain goal, how to make the music better, how to, you know, bolster our concert sales, how to, you know, any number of things. The, the more representation and the more, I mean, thinking that you have in your organization, the better. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the board because bringing diverse voices to the board, uh, suddenly you have new perspectives. Uh, and, and I think that once people, you know, sort of check their expectations at the door a little bit, and they and they listen a little bit they start to say well you know maybe i don't think exactly what you do but i can see where you're coming from on this point and then maybe we find that middle ground and before you know it we have a solution that we never would have been able to think of if it was just you or just them or just me right we we sort of collectively uh shift our focus and realize yeah we we can do things better and by doing things better uh, our, our product is going to be better. Our organization is going to be better. Our sound is going to be better. Mm -hmm. uh, any number of things could be improved. So um, unfortunately, something that we've faced with um, the creation of this podcast is a little bit of, I don't know, backlash or commentary from people who think that uh, by having a focused conversation on diversity, it is going to push out the white perspective or the white voice and there's a lot of fear and apprehension 
um, that when something becomes diverse, other people lose something. Um, which hopefully if they listen to a conversation that is about uh, collaboration and joining together, that some of those fears will disappear. But you know, how do we how do we combat people who have this mindset? Or not combat, that's the wrong word. How do we talk to and engage with people who have this mindset when sometimes we feel like we want to fight? Um, or because I, you know, we get passionate about it. How do we um have a voice of understanding so that we truly do have a diverse community where everyone comes together and hopefully our halls are fuller, our music is more robust and our programs are even more, uh, you know, set in the community and, and make more of an impact. Sure. So um, I, I'm glad that you caught the word combat, right? Yeah. I think that <laughs> it's easy to be combative. It's easy to fight. It's easy to argue. It's easy to you know to just say i'm not going to listen because i don't agree because you're wrong and i'm right and that by definition is incompatible with a diverse uh environment because what does diverse mean diverse means that we have representation from all perspectives all people all cultures all number of places not just one if we were truly trying to just say you know well now it's all about uh, you know, musicians of color, and there's no space for white musicians and white people anymore unless they agree with us, then that is totally missing the point. What we have to remember is if we are asking those of us who have a different perspective to be listen, to be to sit and to be willing to listen to us, we have to be prepared to do the same. And you have to acknowledge that others have valid perspectives and experiences, even if unfortunately at times they have connotations or implications that are damaging. Uh, I, I'm sure that a number of people would think that just the conversation I'm having, which I hope is as open and respectful as possible, they would believe that to be damaging or, mm. or, or, or harmful to them. And, uh, you know, as I said before, the, the fact of the matter is white voices and white people have been dominant in this space for a long time. And he, that, by definition, omits other voices and other perspectives. So, you know, it's a little bit difficult to walk that line of, yes, we have to, you know, we have to listen and we have to be willing to listen to a perspective that we don't agree with, but we also need to make sure that we carve out some space for those who haven't been a part of this before. And I don't think that it comes from two different sides clashing with one another. I think it happens when those two different perspectives uh, have some mutual respect and they acknowledge that they have differences, but they are both valid and that there and they must agree that there is something to be found in the middle there must be some way that we can understand and respect one another without actively tearing one another down because let's face it you're never going to be able to carry everyone along with you hundred percent but the the best case scenario is you bring along as many people as possible and then those ones that you can't quite manage to bring along they're not actively working against you. They just don't necessarily participate with you. 
And the same goes for any issue, I think. And, you know, I've, I've been very, very careful not to use uh, the word politics or political because I want to make it very clear that, you know, oftentimes these issues get painted as sociopolitical. That's just wrong. They're human issues. We're all, you know, one people. We're all one country. And we should be able to recognize that the, the variance in our perspectives is what makes us a great place, what makes us a great people. And that if we check those expectations at the door, we realize, you know, we have a lot more to share than we have to fight about. Mm, wow, yeah. That, your, your answer was just <laughs> well, incredible. And yeah. really, thank you. Thank you for saying all of this, really. It's, it's a privilege to, to have this conversation with you. Just a, a few more things here. We, you talk a lot about the pipeline of getting kids involved yeah. at age five, six, or seven, getting kids involved at a young age. And hopefully, if enough will at least get involved with classical music, not all of them are going to become professionals. But those that don't hopefully will become educated consumers of the arts, right. which are as important to have for our existence as a profession as those of us who actually are members of the profession. So yeah. Yeah. in the interim, if let's say we start today and we there's a massive program across the country, or at least let's say across Canton, to get as many people of color to play an instrument in the age five, six, seven range. If that's gonna help us in 20 to 30 years, what can we do today yeah. for communities of color, for the adults already out there in communities of color to help bring them into the audience of the yeah. symphony hall? You know, I, um, I, I like to talk about when, in terms of community engagement, I have this idea, or I, again, sorry let me try that again people <laughs> like to use the word community outreach right where we're we're in our place and we reach out to these communities and you know we give them a concert or something you know i i, I don't like that word because Bad it word. implies <laughs> that we stay here and the people that we're trying to engage with stay where they are and right. i think that i think that if we reshift that narrative a little bit to where you know you come to my house and I come to yours, you know, mm -hmm. bring people to our space and we travel to their space as well. I think that that's really important, right? For the people that haven't been to a, you know, a concert hall before because, you know, they just think, well, this isn't something that we do or someone told them that's not what you do. I mean, don't listen to that. You just show up and you say, hey, you know what? We're in a library in your area or we're in your neighborhood and we're sharing this music with you and in your space and we would love if you come to our space where we're going to do some music as well but you share with us you know that's that's the way that i think that we establish communication and contact with those who don't currently have it and um you know sometimes i i, I love pops concerts i really do i think that they're fun to play just as just as fun as anything because why because i'm sharing music with people uh, I, I think that using, uh, you know, programming that's relevant to people, it's worth, it's worthwhile. We, we shouldn't kid ourselves. I mean, who's to say that one music is 
you know, superior, right? Or more worthwhile. I mean, I know what I love. What I love most is probably, yes, Bach, Mozart, Bartok, Stravinsky. And then, oh, I don't know, I might love to listen to uh, John Legend and Michael Jackson too. Like I, I do, I love it. I, I love everything. And, and, and it's, it's all worthwhile. You know, if we, if we, again, we just have all of these connotations and expectations and tropes of, of, of the of the classical tradition. I think that the more that we just start to you know get away from this you know classical tradition, music, you know, conservatory, all these all these things that mean something, they've only been imbued with meaning by prominent scholars and educators and performers throughout history who, guess what, were of you know educated, wealthy, elite, white status. So now we have the power as educators, teachers, performers, scholars. Now, us, it's in our hands. We get to decide, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to share. This is what I'm going to play because this is what I believe in. This matters. And we all have that power. It doesn't just come from above. It, that's, that's not the way it works. We get to decide. And I think that it's a really exciting time because not only do we uh, get to, you know, go through our past and bring with it, you know, bring bring it along what we want. Uh, we get to move ahead. We get to move into the future in the way that we decide to, and that could be anything, anything at all. <laughs> yeah. Spe you know, speaking of the future, we've talked this entire conversation has just been why. Is diversity important that's just been this whole this whole conversation and so um hopefully our audience has heard heard that and so from your perspective looking into the future of classical music orchestral music your own music where where do you see it going or maybe where do you want to see it go sure um you know i i i want the future of classical music right this this question uh, is classical music dying? You know, this is this has been discussed for a long time now. Um, the answer to that, by the way, is no. But I, I, my vision for the future of classical music is one that we should be able to all be proud of. It's one where musicians, families, cultures, communities, and audiences from everywhere are not just welcomed, but like represented in our in our spaces i mean yes we we want to have people from everywhere in our art form and they're going to be there already you know we we want to make sure that we just as soon uh, dedicate ourselves to music art and culture from the central asian east asian south american indigenous american african you know cultures we should be prepared to play music. We should be prepared to dive into that culture just as soon as we would our own. And I think that until everyone, I mean, in the, in the education system, in professional orchestras, in, 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 in every facet of our, of our field of music, performance and study, until we're ready for that, then we have to sort of work tirelessly ahead towards the future to try and make it such that, you know, yes, we're, we're still playing a, a Beethoven symphony every now and then. Of course we are. We're not throwing out something that's great, 
but we're also bringing in so much more that hasn't been heard before just because someone decided they weren't going to do it. I mean, we, it's so exciting to me and, and that we have this power, as I said, to, to figure out, you know, it's not just a Western classical tradition, it's a classical tradition. There's music everywhere and we get to bring it all in and we get to do with it what we choose. And I'm going to choose to perform it, to love it, to play it the best way I can and to advocate for it in every space that I occupy so that, you know, 10 years from now, classical music isn't just what it is today. It's something new and it's something that has the whole world involved. And I think as difficult as the pandemic has been for all of us musicians who live to perform, who live right. to be on stage, the one blessing of this time has been, it's given us time not just to prepare for the next concert, learn the music we need to learn for right. next week, but to open up our minds to all of this music that's out there. And you know, I've one of the greatest joys has been discovering music by women and by minority composers that I just, not even that I actively chose not to explore, sure. but simply I have a job. I, I have concerts on my calendar that have certain music. And all of a sudden here I am with this time to explore Nice repertoire. And it's been one of the greatest joys of the past year for me to explore. And I hope that as this music starts to become more, hopefully, starts to become more prevalent on the concert stages, that everybody else has that same experience that I did. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And um, it, it reminds me of another point. I can't remember the name of the organization but they, they have a catch a catchphrase, which is reminding you that all music was once new music. Right. I think yeah. that forgetting contemporary voices would be a would be a big mistake because right, I mean, the 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 voices of today, the voices of now in fifty years, a hundred years are gonna be reflecting our our society, our culture, our life. I mean, and and, and that's going to be an amazing thing to champion works that are written today. I mean, that's, that's just as exciting as anything, as I said, looking forward, because once we get to forward, then when <laughs> we look back, when are we looking back to? Right now, right to today, you know? Exactly, exactly. So as we wrap up this incredible conversation, any final thoughts of what we can do here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra and as an industry to orchestrate change? You know, um, I think that the more we can, again, the more we can turn to young people. I mean, young people are our future. I'm a father of a young child. I, I, I know that I know more than anyone that, you know, children are our future. Um, making sure that they grow up in a world where, you know, music is what we want it to be, you know, a beautiful thing that is in inclusive space and it's and that is for everyone i want music to be for everyone um and i want everyone to know you know how great it feels to be a part of it i i i'm 
in love with music with what I get to do when I get to do it right I and I want everyone to be able to share that that warmth and that positivity and and I want to come back to positivity and collaboration um none of this happens overnight and none of this happens without as many of us working together as possible despite any differences to try and make it a better place um I think that the more we can display our commitment to the music you know we, we're putting contemporary voices we're putting voices uh that have been previously underrepresented at the forefront of what we do um that 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 shows commitment that shows you know we believe in this this is going to be embedded at our core and that this is something we're committed to now and always and um and then once we get to that future uh you know my 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 son will be hopefully involved in something that's you know a little bit different than what it looks like today but is just as powerful and it's just as meaningful to him as, as it is to me well julian maddox thank you so much for being with us today it's been an absolute pleasure and i can't wait to see you on the stage at umstad hall again hopefully in the not too distant future uh, thank you both so much for having me. I'm looking forward to that day more than you can know. <laughs> yes, of course. Thank you so much. Julian Maddox, a member of the first violin section here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra, a student at the Cleveland Institute of Music, where he is a founding member of their Black Students Union. Today's hit music is live and local on 92.5 FM WDJQ or Q92radio.com on your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or desktop for the most music every hour. The most prizes, too. Please read all contest rules and regulations prior to participating at www.q92radio.com contests. Don't forget about our sister station, WDPN-AM1310, which features the sounds of unforgettable favorites 24 hours a day. The station is full service with hourly ABC news around the clock and local news every 30 minutes between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. weekdays. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.